Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is the Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind. Also younger than the sun. And our bonnet boat was one as we sailed into the mystic. The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. In this episode, I continue my conversation with John Pentland, whose church, Hillhurst United, lights the way for people more comfortable being seekers than believers. In the last episode, we heard about his church's radical shift away from conventional belief and practice toward a lively engagement with the world. As our conversation continues, we ask what that means for traditional beliefs about God, about Jesus, and about being faithful in a modern age where meeting online just may be the new normal. Here's where we went. Wanna rock your gypsy soul And it just like way back in the days of old And together we will flow As we sail into the mistakes John, welcome back to the cave. Good to be back at the cave. We were hearing uh, in uh, the last part of our conversation um, about your your journey, your personal journey that led you quite naturally to a place um, which is right on the edge of church land, like Hillhurst United Church, your church is showing the way for many, many other churches about how we can connect with the world, not just with our tradition and our traditions and our beliefs, but with the world. Um, I'm curious uh, in this part of our conversation to talk about what are the things that we can still carry with us from our tradition into some kind of modern incarnation of ministry in the modern world. So, for instance, let me start uh, here with your sense of God. How has that changed over your lifetime? Um, So where did it start and where is it now? Oh, that's a good question. How did it start? Well, probably like everybody else, um, you're introduced to God. If you grew up in the church, you went to church. Uh, I remember not liking Sunday school. I remember sitting there with my head on my mother's lap and her feeding me lifesavers all the way through church. Um, I think, but I have moments I remember in my teenage years, I remember being at a Christmas Eve service which I always think about on Christmas Eve, because that's the time when people who don't believe in God come to church anyway, Mm. Uh, sitting there watching uh, the choir do Handel's Messiah and watching the guy in front of me directing with his finger, you know. Uh, And I remember the mystery of the dark sanctuary and the candlelights and this music. So I remember that. I remember um, later on in life... uh, hearing great stories. I mean, I, I, I like hearing stories. I love preachers t- telling stories. And so I, as a kid in teenage years, I liked going to church. I can tell you 
a sermon I remember, a preacher talking about gossip. It's got to be true, kind, and necessary. I still remember ah. that sermon in high school. So I loved stories. And so the connection for me was story and still is. Um, so for me, uh, being in a place and hearing someone share what really matters to them matters. I hate when I see preachers who don't seem to care hmm. or who haven't really thought about what they're saying. Uh, or aren't sharing anything of themselves. Giving writing sermons is laborious labor. I did one yeah. today. You're giving birth, and there's nothing worse than feeling like you didn't quite do what you could do. Yeah. Um, but I love stories. I love trying to say what matters and what I'm going to say. Is this going to matter at all? Um, and you remember Sunday nights. You know, you after you've done your Sunday, and you're going, "Oh, why did I say that?" Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, long and short of it, I I love good storytelling. I love people sharing what matters. That's it. And something about the mystery of the building, which is interesting, because we often, um, I think those of us who are, who are in the church business, we get a lot of resistance from congregations around the building because they don't want us to do anything about the building. Don't change the building. When we renovated, we took the pews out. And really, we had to prepare for months so that we could have the conversation about removing the pews. And as much as it was difficult to work with people's experience of the building, I also came to respect the building actually becomes part of their faith journey. It matters. Now, it doesn't mean you don't change it, right? But, but that experience you had of a candlelit, a dark candlelit Christmas Eve, it stays with you. So that's so if I yeah. if I may the yeah. building itself actually the, the the space the physical space actually makes a difference. Totally, I mean United Churches often, in particular in Alberta, are not particularly beautiful at all. You know, cinder block, very functional. Hillhurst happens to be 115, and it's got a sloping floor, and it creaks, and it's got the old pews, and it's lots uh, of wood. Lots of wood. It's got 37 uh, pipe. Organ because I've counted it a million times, and when I get bored during church, I count the pipes. pipes. But, so it, it's got an old pipe organ. Uh, it also has had uh, people play guitar and drums and, and the variety. But bottom line is, I think that what's the matter if you're sitting in a hard pew for an hour on a Sunday? So I think, and I've been in your site uh, at St. Stephen's. Like that's probably one of the nicest sites I've seen. Uh, St. Stephen's, just the, the, the windows, the, the space, etc. Um, architecture matters. Yeah, I think it does. It does. Now, that's only one of the things you mentioned, but I didn't want us uh, to lose it, because that suggests something about the nature of God, even when we're not thinking conceptually, that somehow God is mystery. It's part of because you can't quite put your finger on what is it about a church on a Christmas Eve. It's mysterious, but it draws you in. You bet. Right? It matters. It matters. Also, but then you said something about storytelling, but then you qualified it. But it's more like telling the truth. Totally. Truthful storytelling, especially that costs the speaker something. So it's the speaker telling a story, perhaps at their own expense, right? Which you do, right? There, you have to. There's a bullshit detector in every pew. Yeah. They And there's also a box of Kleenex. And what that means is people, and I'm not just saying the sermon, trust me, the 
the gathering of, peop- of prayers when people tell really what's going on in life and they tell a glimpse of what's going on. And if, and if people need Kleenex or somebody to just put a hand in the shoulder, that's, that's real. So there has to be a realness in what's being said and a vulnerability and being willing to tell the truth. Telling the truth is it, for sure. Yeah. And somehow God is in that experience of truth-telling, right? Is it? That... 100%. Yeah. Especially if it's hard. Yeah. Right? I remember yeah. a day when I was uh, uh, doing asking people what they wanted to pray for, and this woman in the, in the back put up her hand and said, I want to pray for my son who's addicted to videos. And... I, and I was like, wow. Anyway, I prayed that I give, you know, we pray for those who are addicted uh, to videos. After church, she came up to me and said, uh, what do we do about that? And I said, well, let's get a speaker in. So we got a speaker in. And 14 people came to hear about teenagers addicted to videos. That's how you take a prayer saying, my kid. And then you turn into, what are we going to do about it? Then you got a community who also share that story. And I would never have thought of that, even though I had a kid doing the same thing in the basement. So there has to be realness to what they're saying about about what matters. And therefore, talking about our notion of God, this is not a distant God. This is not a God uh, high above us and beyond. This is a God who's in the details of our lives. Totally. Right? Both beyond us and within us. Yeah. What's the word? Panentheistic. You know, God is beyond us and within us. That doesn't mean God's the table. But God is both beyond us and within us. And I believe that. So I believe there's in mystery. Yeah. I believe we don't know at all for sure. Be wary of people who... Who know. Who know. Yeah, run the other way. But I believe uh, in the divinity of people. Like, I believe God... What does God do? God works through us, speaks through us. And it's attending our ears and our hearts to what's being said. What then um, do modern people, modern Christians in particular, what do they do with the Bible? So, you know, Marcus Borg said you take it seriously, not literally, right? So we take it really seriously. Uh, People are always surprised that I know as much as I do because they don't think I do. (laughs) But it was my favorite uh, courses in in seminary. So I love the words, what they mean, uh, literally, etymologically. I love um, understanding context, what was said, when, and why. Uh, I think the Bible is, it can be many things. There's poetry, there's history, there's songs, there's parables, there's stuff that'll put you right to sleep. (laughs) And there's letters there that are inspiring. So it's a collection of books written over a long period of time by different people trying to say, this is what God's like. Men and women, uh, young and old, telling their story. And it's our job to uh, help people get excited about it and tell them uh, through our own learning, because I believe training matters, uh, to begin to wonder together. And so for me, the Bible is a book uh, that you engage in and you uh, come come open-eared and hearted to. So I remember this guy met me at um, Higher Ground and he was... He was uh, he was coming out. He was a gay man, and he was uh, from an evangelical tradition. And he said, "What do you What do you recommend that I do?" I said, "I recommend you put your Bible away, because all he could do was quote all the passages that made him feel bad about who he was." I said, "Just yeah. give it a bit of a Sabbath." And he came to the church and was engaged for a while, and then continued on. But 
point is, I think it's a dangerous book. You can make it uh, what you want, say what you want. You can condone slavery. You can condone uh, um, racism. You can condone homophobia if you want. Then, of course, you can do the other. So, I mean, I was ordained in 1988, key year in the United Church. It's the year we said uh, people, uh, regardless of sexual orientation, can be a leader, a minister. And I was sent from downtown Toronto, Young and Bloor, to Pickardville. Look that up on the map. And here I am with people who didn't know me. I didn't know them. And I'm landing in. And they sure weren't sure what they were getting. And so we had to explore what does the Bible say? And so I remember the Wesleyan quadrilateral, Save My Bacon. And Wesley basically said, you got to look at tradition. What's the church said through time? What does scripture say? What's in the Bible? What is ex- what's our experience? Um, and what does reason tell us? And uh, it was so f- really wonderful to meet with people and say, so what does the Bible say? And they'd say, I don't know, but I'm sure it says it's wrong. Uh, or someone would say, I don't know any gay people. Sure enough, in their own family, they had gay people. But what was delightful was to take an issue like human sexuality and look at it through that lens and help people realize that to making good decisions requires our mind, our experience, our tradition. And those, those, uh, the fullness of that discussion, I remember a lady coming out of church that week. Uh, she left the meeting that night. She said, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm never coming back. She came back to church the next week. I said, what are you doing here? I thought you were done. She goes, oh, no, 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 no. I listened to Oprah Winfrey this week, and she said homosexuality is okay. I'm totally fine. So where was our authority? Oprah Winfrey, cultural figure, right? Yeah. Hugely influential. But what was so beautiful in that experience was we weren't telling people what to say. We were saying, I'm not going to convince you anything, but let's use our, our all of these aspects to make a decision. And people realize, boy, I'm making a decision based on very little. So it's not just to be about your brain, but what is what is what's what what comes to the decision making and the formation of what I believe? Yeah. But what do we do? What do we do with some of the church's core beliefs? Let's talk about Jesus, for instance. Um, who is Jesus for you now? Oh, Jesus is multifaceted. Uh, Jesus was a questioner, a, uh, a rabbi, a teacher. I think he was a healer uh, of both disease and dis-ease. I think he was a spirit person. I think he was a mystic, a contemplative. Uh, I think he was some. Uh, he's a cheerleader for everybody. Um, I think he also was very in touch with anger and rage and injustice. Uh, so very much a person engaged in the world, real world. Uh, and I think for me, Jesus is central uh, to what I believe. Did he I'm, die on the cross for our sins? Absolutely not. <laughs> he died because of our sin. Okay, so atonement theology is uh, archaic. Uh, I think it's used as a tool. I, but I do know atonement has that as a right, root at one moment. Yep, I yeah. can buy that. So when I think of uh, Good Friday, Jesus died because um, we couldn't hack it, and we would kill him today. Same thing. So because, not for. That that makes God an abusive father. Really? No kidding. Which is a terrible, terrible I don't have any time for that. I don't mind understanding it, and I get it. I I could actually, in a very rare occasion, 
understand it from somebody of their experience. I remember working at the Don Jail in Toronto. It was a long time ago. This guy named Gerard. I was a visitor with the Quakers in the Don Jail. And uh, he got me aside. And we had we were sort of a gathering in the evening to have coffee and talk. He pulled me aside and he said, hey, you know, uh, when I came in this place, I thought I could kill myself. And he said, do you want me to show you how? And I'm like, no, no, it's okay. He says, you know what? I, I took my T-shirt and I wound it all up and I could made a noose. And he said, I... I made that noose and I went in the chapel and I laid it at the foot of the cross. I don't need to do that. Mm. That is atonement theology. Yeah. And I, so I can say, Gerard, thank God you didn't do that. But it, it, uh, Jesus died for my sins is really a personal salvation. I think salvation is way wider. The word salvation has its root, salve. It means in uh, Latin to develop without hindrance. So imagine God wants us to develop without any barriers, but they're there anyway. Or it means in Alberta, I could say it means in to develop in wide open spaces. So salvation yeah. is freeing. It's not constricting. Yeah. Uh, but atonement theology is um, often an archaic way to keep people in line. Yeah. There's a whole conversation right there, but that's for another time. That would take us. But I, I think that that the church has used its beliefs to infantilize people, to keep them children, and it's anyway that, that we could talk about that another time. Well, Richard Orr also said the church is a great place to hide from God. I love that. Yeah, churches can keep people in line uh, based on fear or based on theology that doesn't make sense, uh, and I, that's a very sad thing. So what can churches do, and especially because we're talking now more broadly about seekers, some who may land within uh, the kind of Christian community broadly, but um, what can the church offer to a seeker these days? If it isn't answers, what can the church offer? Well, I have a strong belief uh, now, more so than ever, in public theology. So say more about that. I, I, I... Probably every week, write a letter to an editor of the paper about what comes out. Just so I'll tell you yesterday, there was an article about uh, the uh, the anti-mask campaigns, and they they uh, arrested two of the preachers, and there was an MLA there from the Wild Rose Party who said, you know, something like this. He said something like, the, it's not the common good to close down businesses and put people out of work. And I, as I read the word common ground, I'm like, oh, that is all what scripture is about, the common good, common good, sorry, common good. So I immediately wrote in saying, this is my understanding of the common good. I believe that we have to engage uh, publicly in statements about how the church is perceived and uh, try to correct, if you will, the theology or assumptions people have about the church. It's hard. There's, so often there's bad religion. And I think our job is to be in the world publicly about good religion. Mm -hmm. And so um, I have found that people come to our community saying, I saw you on the uh, television or read your article or whatever. And, you know, when you do that, you don't know if anybody finds it or reads it or not. But I think it's the job of every minister to be engaged publicly in what's going on. Because if we take the Bible in one hand and newspaper in the other, there's lots there to chew on. Yeah. In fact, I've got a student this year at our church, and I said, one of the things you got to do this year is get a, a letter in the paper about some issue. Pick anyone you want. And she's done it already. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, now you got to do an opinion page. So I just think that 
people's assumption about church are often not my experience of church. And we have a job to be public about what we do believe, which is, I would hope, healthy, uh, sound theology and get it out into the world. It's like a vision of the church that is actually equipping us to deal with the world. It's not taking us out of the world, right? That's what you're describing. Right, yeah. I think people want... People want to know that what they, the Netflix shows they watch, uh, the books they read, the movies they see, um, the hobbies they have, have a theological connection. I think they do. I, we just did a, I just did a uh, two hour evening on the theology of Schitt's Creek. And people will go, what do you mean I watch that? But it, there's many life lessons that connect to the scriptures or to faith or to our spiritual journey. And so, we have to be willing to take whatever's going on in the world and say, what's the theological connection? That's our work. Yeah. And our job, I think, is to help people do it themselves. Uh, so I don't know anything that's not spiritual. Yeah. And Richard Brewer, again, would say everything belongs. <laughs> and so if everything belongs, what's the connection? Yeah. And people get thrilled at that. They start to think for themselves. They start to share their experiences and their stories. And that is very powerful. Very powerful. Do you think there are any uh, practices that the church is, in fact, uh, or can teach people that helps them with their spiritual journey? In a sense, you've named one, which is engagement, meaningful engagement with the world. Are there others? Like traditionally, we would speak of prayer. Uh, We would speak of, well, worship. Um, Are there practices like that that people would learn? So believe it or not... um so our church has four core practices: hospitality. You got to eat and drink together, because then you're you're going to be changed in conversation. Hospitality is an ancient biblical uh, tradition. Spirituality. Uh, recognize we're not all religious, but how do we nurture the soul life of each other? So there's a billion courses, seven days a week, literally. Um, social justice. How do you say what we say and sing into the world? If it's just about Sunday morning, we're sunk. We got to be yeah. engaged in the world. Yeah. And it's grounded in risk. So what I would say, what I've noticed in the last, uh, well, particular during COVID, I'll give an example. We have a gentleman uh, who leads Mindful Morning, seven in the morning. I was there this morning. Uh, 26 people online for half an hour being led in a very a short uh, meditation, a piece of poetry and 20 minutes of silence, and then prayer. And that practice has grown immensely. Think about it, seven in the yeah. morning. 25 people there. Um, So that's daily. We have a practice on Wednesday morning and evening that's uh, called uh, Day Break and Day's End. And that's, again, along the same contemplative path. So I believe that, um, and you see this everywhere, mindfulness, the practice of silence, um, being exposed to poetry and scripture and song and movement is very powerful. so, so I guess what I'm saying is that the contemplative path is the ground of our church, even though many would not know it. And that is the silence and the unknowing and the mystery and the community is key. I think I was at a meeting a couple of weeks ago and, and these are young people trying to reimagine Calgary. And they said, oh man, what we need is a place where, you know, where you could gather and you could eat a meal together and share your stories and maybe do some music. I'm thinking, (laughs) sounds like church, you know, but I think there's lots of people that don't know that. 
but they don't know that that's what we do. We eat together. Where church, you know, is very diverse yeah. of opinion, of age, of experience, yeah. and diversity is what we want to honor. It's not making everybody the same. It's actually welcoming and understanding and engaging with someone who's very different than you. We all have these little groups where we're all the same these days on Facebook or otherwise, and I, that scares me. I, I, I need to hear from a seven-year-old. I need to hear the wisdom of an 80-year-old. And so for seekers, uh, a community that is diverse people uh, is really insightful to their life. And yeah. so one of the things churches uh, can do is, is pay attention, if you will, and not, not try to get them in church, but pay attention to what's going on in the world so that people who are observing us say, hey, maybe this is a place to step into one day. If not physically, online, uh, because I think that's the way most people sniff us out. And I don't mean just our church, but people sniff out churches. This is a safe place. They want to know they can belong. Uh, and I don't mean belong to the church, but belong to the conversation. We uh, ended uh, the last conversation uh, that we had. We were just beginning to talk about COVID and its effect on church. And um, it was time for us to wrap that conversation up. But I wanted to come back to it um, because Hillhurst has been quite extraordinary. Uh, I should tell people that I, I was uh, invited to be part of your recorded sermon. It wasn't a sermon, but an interview kind of conversation uh, for your online service and to stay for a conversation afterwards with people online on Zoom. And among those people, and what were there, 38 or something like that, 40 people who stayed to, to sort of debrief what they just heard, one of them was a woman from Ontario who had never even stepped foot in the building, and yet because of the online access, felt a part of the Hillhurst community. Tell me a bit about uh, how Hillhurst has thrived during COVID in that way. Uh, you know, I haven't done the work to really reflect on it the way I want to, but March 14th, uh, 2020 was the day when it started. And I remember being terrified, standing in front of a camera saying, we're closing church on Sunday. Uh, that was the first kind of online uh, presence that we had. And suddenly we had to produce Sunday to nobody, like literally to a blinking light, empty building. How do you do this? Um, I think we were in grief, and I still think we are actually grief. There's, uh, you know, there's loss, sorrow, anger, um, bargaining, <laughs> acceptance, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. But I think what we've learned, this has been the hardest year I've ever worked in 30 years. Mm. Uh, it's been the most challenging because church is about connection. It's meeting people for off, just a off the cuff conversation. How you doing? What are you doing? How was your golf game? You changed jobs. Somebody died. Somebody's ill. We don't have any of that. So yeah. it's quite formal now. Um, and we miss people because I think we're people of the flesh. Incarnation is the theological word. We're of the flesh. But what it's been very uh, hard. We're in what's called liminal space right now. Liminal means threshold. So we're not going back. We're not to the new thing. We're in the in-between space. And it is a space that is very um, unknown. It is uh, like being pregnant. It's the labor time. Uh, liminal is like a staircase. It gets you from one place to the other. So you're on the staircase right now, going up or down, we don't know, to something new. And uh, what we've learned is how to connect, that people want to connect. 
I never in a million years would have thought that you could be emotional or moved on a Zoom meeting. And you, I think you were there that day mm -hmm. when Margaret mm -hmm. from Ontario says, this is my community, I've never been there. And she begins to cry. Yeah. Um, we've learned how to do church. We've had terrible services and great services. We've engaged people differently. Um, what I think that we're learning is that online will always be now, forever. You've said that before, at least to me, you've said, we're not going back. No, I, for number one, I like weekends off. Uh, <laughs> but, but no, 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 we'll have, we'll have a hybrid of some in-person and some online. Yeah. You know, my biggest fear right now is a church full of people. <laughs> like, I'm, I know the first day back, I'm just going to cry, but I'm also going to be scared. Yeah. Uh, because we're not used to, after a year, walking down the street and people moving out of the way, and people being behind masks of small gatherings. Yeah. Uh, the biggest gathering I've been in a year and a half is 15 people at a funeral. Yeah. So what's that going to be like? Uh, so we're, um, you know, for me, church is going to be radically different. I don't know what it is. Uh, our church has tripled in size numerically. We also know that people don't go to church on Sunday. Like we'll throw up a service on Sunday and there'll be 200 views, which might mean live, which may mean maybe there's 250 there, maybe three. But then by Wednesday, there's 700 people have looked at it. So that means they're going to church Sunday night, you know, the middle of the night, so whatever. It's, it's just a matter of paying attention to the people. Like people are actually liking this. And I, I yeah. think they like the fact that they don't have to, on a Sunday morning, okay, get showered and dressed and get out the door for a certain time, then find parking if that's a, if that's an issue. If the weather's a problem, they can sit there with their coffees and, and enjoy they, this. Or, as you say, watch it some other time during the week. It's quite, and, and I think it has surprised people, especially older people, to think, and this is way safer. Like in terms of in COVID times, like yeah. I'm not exposed to whatever flu bug is going around. So yeah. people have actually told us they're they're preferring this. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting, hey? Yeah. Because they also can have anonymity. Like, we don't know uh, lots of who all those people are either. They could be naked. And they can, they can, be, they can be making <laughs> love. Who knows? Uh, they can also be doing the dishes. They can be driving the car. There's all kinds of other ways they can do yeah. both at the same time. Yeah. But I think that it's uh, actually... Uh, kindled a bit of intimacy for people because they're ex they can also fast forward the parts they don't like. They can uh, play it over again. Some people have told me some services they watch three or four times. Yeah. Uh, and some have said, I only I skip only to this or that in the service. So people's choice. You know, we're we're going to put mute buttons in the pews when we get back together because <laughs> everybody loves the part they can mute. But I think it's a curious time and it's yeah. it's the, the churches that have adapted during this time will do very well. Yeah. Some have just done nothing. Yeah. And some have, some have had continued with on, you know, live small gatherings. But I think the churches that have seen the beauty and creativity of pulling in music people from all over the place and, and videos and stuff that enhance the experience will do very well. So, well, I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm actually quite excited about it. Yeah. Well, good for you for that level of openness and the curiosity that we spoke of last time, which says not fearfully, oh, dear, this is all changed, but saying, well, what's this going to look like? So good for you and good for Hillhurst for being so open to an unknown path and seeing where it takes you. Um, 
So I want to say one more time uh, to people listening that it's Hillhurst United. That's where you're the minister. If people wanted to contact you there, they could do it. I'm going to I'll leave um, on the website the uh, coordinates so people can get there. Um, is that If somebody wanted to talk with you more about any of this, is that the best way for them to get you through the church website? I think my address is there, but john.pentland at hillhurstunited.com. I'd love to engage with people. Uh, I'd love to have a chance to uh, be challenged or corrected or encouraged. John, thanks for meeting me in the cave. Privilege. Thanks for letting me reflect with you. Yeah, we'll do this again. Sure. Okay. I've been speaking with John Pentland, minister at Hillhurst United Church in Calgary, who offers the possibility of a church as a gathering of seekers. If you'd like to know more, you can visit the church's website at www.hillhurstunited.com. If you'd like to comment on anything you've heard, you can leave a post on the Facebook group The Mystic Cave, or write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com To reach John, you can email him at john.pentland at hillhurstunited.com On our next episode, we settle into our summer series with readings from my collection of short stories, How the Light Gets In. Each week, on Sundays and Thursdays, I'll read one of those stories for you to enjoy on your back deck or on the road, wherever the sun carries you. I hope you enjoy them. Then we'll return to our interview format in September, when we'll be talking about death and dying, a seeker's perspective. Thanks so much for joining me. It's too late to stop now. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. Now